because I too, at that point in my career, didn't know, like I knew I liked this world of fashion, of retail, of brand, but I didn't know where I was going to fit in. So I just needed to go experience more. So I would break out of the space in which I had my role and just be a fly on the wall in the back of the room and be like, oh, so that's what the head of planning does. That's what the head of marketing does. That's what the head of tech does. And started to really absorb and understand other things around me until I found, my God, I want to be a part of all of it. I want to be a generalist. Apparently that's called an entrepreneur. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion, how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately, how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. This week's episode is with the amazing Michelle Cordero Grant. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Lively, a community and brand that inspires women to live passionately, purposefully, and confidently through experiences and products, including bras, bralettes, which I literally live in, undies, swimwear, loungewear, fragrance, and active bras. Michelle launched Lively in 2016 and has amassed and cultivated a network of 100,000 plus ambassadors, opened four stores, and coined the term lingerie, a whole new category blurring the aesthetic lines of lingerie active swim and loungewear, focusing on the best elements of high style and ultimate comfort. She grew the business from its concept stage to a $105 million acquisition in just a few years, beating the odds of female-founded companies and has not only been able to maintain her business throughout the pandemic, but has been able to thrive with record-breaking sales due to her leadership. Prior to starting Lively, Michelle held several roles at a few different companies that ultimately gave her an incredibly vast understanding of business from every level. She really is one of, if not the most knowledgeable, scrappiest, and most resourceful founders I know, who is not only incredibly thoughtful, strategic, and successful, but she's deeply mission-driven and wildly passionate about what she's building. On today's episode, we get into Michelle's career journey and at what point she decided to make switches throughout her career, why it's important to let go of what you thought you wanted and pay attention to what actually genuinely excites you and what doesn't. At what point she had the idea of creating Lively and why she decided to take an intermediate step and work for a startup before taking her first steps in building her own company, tactical ways to build and foster a community and why her team is her biggest driving force. So with that, let's get into this week's episode with the Michelle Cordero Grant. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I feel like this has been a long time coming and I'm so pumped to have you. Yes. By the way, you look fabulous. All the lighting... The lighting in this room is everything of the sort. I'm like, every meeting has to be here. I'm in my room. Like, this is our room. But the lighting is just everything of the sort. All the selfies are right here. (laughs) I love it. Amazing. Well, Um, I'm so pumped 
to have this combo today. Finally. I feel like you're just like a ray of light and like truly someone that lives in their active ingredient. And I'm so excited to get into your whole journey and story. But before we get into it, I always kick off the podcast asking what you were like as a kid that you remember. Um, just cause I feel like the majority of the people that I interview on here that are working in their active ingredient, there's something about their childlike state that is injected into what they're doing today. So I'm just curious to know what you remember and if that rings true for you. Yeah. So, um, I'm the youngest in my family and I, I remember two things about being a kid. One, I grew up fast cause I was always chasing my brother and my older sister. Um, but I also feel like I love being around adults. So I would be at my friend's house in my neighborhood, but I'd always be in the kitchen, like talking to the moms or like listening to the group conversations and like injecting myself. I just always felt like I wanted to know what was next and be a part of what was next in my life. Um, and overall, You're the youngest just, of how many, sorry, three. Okay. Yeah. And overall I was an explorer. So I was constantly leaving the neighborhood at the age of 14. My mom got a phone call. Um, I lived in a very rural area of Pennsylvania, but I rode my bike a couple miles down the street um, to a motel trying to get a job. And they were like, um, you need to come get your daughter. But it was my 14th birthday and I knew it was the day that I could finally earn a paycheck and I was pumped to do so. <laughs> that's so nice. I feel like that's who you are 100% today. Um, yeah. So what did you think you wanted to be? And like, what was, what did you see growing up? Like were your parents entrepreneurial, like, give me, give me a picture of what you saw and what, what you thought you wanted for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I would say by the book, my parents weren't entrepreneurs, but in a sense they were, they both immigrated to the United States on their own, um, found their way to an amazing university in which they met and got married, um, but started a life in, like I said, a very rural area of Pennsylvania. I'm talking like Amish people lived a mile down the street from us. It was very Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, and there wasn't very many Indian people in that area except for us. Um, so I feel like they were entrepreneurs and that they built a life for our family to start a new chapter um, for future generations. And I think that had a lot of influence on me overall because I was always one that was seeking to see more, learn more, do more. Um, I was always wanting to go to the city, like I would get on the bus and take a bus to New York City, you know, on a whim with my friends and like save all of our lunch money just to do so. Um, but I knew I wanted to to do something bigger and have an impact in some way. I just didn't know what. So I always thought the the path to success were doctor, lawyer, investment banker. That's pretty much what any daughter mm -hmm. of two Indian immigrant parents thinks, um, stereotypically, but quite often. Um, so I thought I had to do one of those pathways to see success and find a way towards um, an impactful life. Did your siblings go down those paths? They, we all tried. Um, my sister <laughs> studied chemical engineering and found it to not be her passion and ended up becoming an amazing um, teacher. And um, my brother worked in, in finance and sales and so forth, but also studied business. Um, and I studied finance as well. I think we all like went down that path and then found our own ways um, to enjoy life a different way. So what, what did you realize? Like at what point while you were going down that path, did you understand that that was just not it for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I went to the university of Pittsburgh and I studied finance. Um, and when I was going to college, honestly, I just wanted the college experience. I found the university that had a one page application and no essay. And 
that's how I ended up going to that school. Like I wasn't very studious in that. Really? Aspect. Oh my no, God. I that's was, so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was, I got good grades in high school. I didn't get straight A's and then I got to college. And like I said, I went for the one page application <laughs> and the city that was furthest from my hometown, but was still in state so that I could afford to go. Um, but once I got there, my eyes started to open. I started to realize I needed to do really well in school, not just to have good grades, but to open doors and network. Um, and that's where my Okay, but mind- I want to I want to stay there for a second because like how did you realize that? I feel like a lot of people go to school with just the the thought of parting and or just getting straight A's, but like that networking piece, I feel like it's starting to be more and more um integrated into school and into university. I just feel like that's that's such a huge part of who you are right now. Like what was that 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 yeah. you understood the importance of that? Um, it was almost basically like the top of the class 1% rule. It was always the top of the class that ended up having the greatest opportunities in terms of like job interviews, people they got to meet, places they got to go and so forth. And I was like, well, if I'm not at the top of the class, I'm not going to have those opportunities. So I better figure out how to be at the top of the class. Um, and I actually ended up getting straight A's all the way through college, not because I was good at test taking, but I was good at one, studying, finding good groups, and also going to office hours, man. You could talk a professor all the way up to an A from a B minus. That is such a good takeaway. <laughs> strategy. That is such a good takeaway. I was the queen of office hours, constantly negotiating my way into an A. <laughs> that is so funny. That reminds me, when I was in college, I didn't have the grades to get into the PR school. Like, what? Yeah. At, at Florida State, I literally just did not. The school was not for me. And I went to the head of the PR department and I was like, during his office hours. And I was like, yeah. I, I didn't get in here, but I really want to take the PR course. Like, I know it's only for the people that are in this major, but like, I need to take this course. I need to understand. And like, yeah. he just let me do it. And because I was in that course, I landed my first internship at MTV. And it was literally all because of nagging him, like stroking the ego and being like, I need to be in your class. And then 100%. that office hours yeah. turned into everything else. That's right. I mean, yes, the, you are the professor student, but also you can make the professor your client and get to know them and understand them and understand what they really want you to get out of the class and adapt to that. It doesn't have to be in the test. I was never really good at test taking, to be honest. It was a lot of effort for me. Um, but anyway, back to your initial question of what did I learn? Well, in studying finance and having amazing internships, again, back to straight A's equals amazing internships, I realized I was getting the best internships within my field of finance and I was bored to tears. It was this intangible thing that I was doing, whether it was corporate finance or different types of finance. And I just wasn't getting a ton of joy um, or emotion out of it. And that's when I realized I needed to find something that was more tangible. And then I ended up haphazardly finding... um, an amazing conversation with Federated, which was a fashion merchandising training program for the company that owns Macy's and Bloomingdale's. Um, And the way that that happened was actually an amazing story. In the time that I was graduating in 2002, there wasn't a lot of jobs. The economy was still coming out of the slump from the dot-com situation. And so of the jobs that were available at the University of Pittsburgh, I'm like, "Mm, these aren't the ones that I want. So my friends and I started going to other university job fairs. So we would just walk into Rutgers job fair, walk into UConn, literally just pretend we were students, walk on campus 
and start networking. And that's actually how I met um, Federated. You've always been so scrappy. Like this is, this is you. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you get away with that anymore. Cause security is probably <laughs> way tighter than 2002, but that's how I met, um, you know, the HR recruiter at Federated and found my first role within fashion. I, you know, saw her and she asked me, you know, what I was interested in. And I said business. And she said, great. We need people with a business mind in the fashion industry. Flew me to New York and that's where it started. So talk me through that first job and just like, what was it that you liked? What was it that you didn't like? And just, yeah, yeah, give me, give me the rundown of what that first gig looked like. Sure. So the first thing was how I got the gig. So I flew to New York and I was one of hundreds applying for this class of, I want to say it was 17 um, individuals. But I remember the one thing that I left that interview with thinking was this girl was not impressed with me at all. Like, I think I did okay in the interview, but I did not leave a lasting mark. And I knew the other candidates were way more um, qualified, like went to school for fashion merchandising, et cetera. So for my thank you letter, I actually did a PowerPoint instead of writing a thank you email super dorky, but super effective. Cause to this day, she probably remembers. <laughs> wow. What was the PowerPoint? It was about who I was and thanking her and why I was going to be effective and so forth. But it was just like kind of disrupting the norm of the thank you email. It was like, how am I going to stand out? And is this was, all yeah. coming like from you or like, do you have like mentors along the way that are helping you come up with these ideas? Cause I feel like a lot of people wouldn't just have that thought to be like, go that extra step, you know? I, I think it's just the idea of I didn't stand out face to face, so I need to stand out somehow. And that's what I came up with. <laughs> okay. So how long were you at this role for? Um, so it was a 12-week training program. We learned everything from how a product is designed to how it gets into a Macy's and a Bloomingdale's. Um, and I once the training program was over, you got assigned an area of the business. So obviously any girl that is going into fashion and buying wants ready to wear. I did not get ready to wear. I got lingerie and sleepwear and I cried my eyes out. I thought my life was over. Like this is the end of my fashion career. I need to be in ready to wear. Um, But the 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 world said, yeah, (laughs) the universe said, no, you need to be in, in lingerie. And I quickly ended up loving every part of that category. What did you love the most about it? One, it's for women, only for women. And it's had so much opportunity because I sat in a space where um, a huge part of our industry is sold, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, et cetera. And there was not a lot of innovation. There was not a lot of newness, but it was one of the most profitable areas of a department store's business. And that for me- And you had access to that information? Exactly. So I was constantly looking at sales, working with the designers, and then telling, you know, this is the time when Macy's had Macy's East, Macy's West, Burdines, all these different types of facets. And you would meet with the buyers. Florida wanted, you know, flamingos and Seattle wanted black and Cali wanted fashion. But you got to see everything in work. And then at the end of the day, how it performed. So for me, it was almost like being a part of this mini business within a very large business. And I would see the bottom line, which was, our area was always making a lot of profit for the organization and ready to wear while glamorous and amazing was ridden with markdowns and was a hard bottom line. So, well, this is for women and it makes money. Tell me more. So at what point did you go from there to Victoria's Secret? 
So then I jumped around a little bit. I didn't like the career path that was set out for that program. So you went from trainee to assistant to a planner to working in the stores to coming back in. And I was like, no, that's not for me. I want to take some twists and turns and really figure out what I want. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really lucky that I moved over to another department store called May Company, where I started traveling. Um, I was going to Asia. I was meeting with the vendors. I was really into the um, the design and the sourcing side of it. So I can I remember my boss put me in a room with a vendor and was like, "Don't come out until you get a sixty five margin." So I was negotiating in Seoul, Korea, buttons wow. and details to get everything to the right margin, etc. But got kind of my sea legs on that side of the business, and then decided. I didn't want to be in department stores anymore. I wanted to get closer to the customer. Mm. Went to VF Corporation. What year was this, by the way? Just to like, in my mind, kind of like think of when the direct-to-consumer boom started happening. This was pre-direct-to-consumer boom. So this was between 2002 and 2005. Okay. And, um, but you could see. So what was really kind of bothering me in those years was we would have these amazing concepts, design stories to tell. But by the time it went through the channel of a department store and got to the customer, between the markdowns and the sales, there was no story. Mm-hmm. There was no concept. It was just product on a hanger. <laughs> but what were you so, basing uh, that that insight on? Like, like what were you looking at? Were there, were there other categories that you saw that were getting their story across in a more meaningful way that you were like, why is this not happening to our department? Like, where, where did that yeah. fire come from? Yeah, I would see vertical brands, what you call a vertical brand. So a brand that is from concept all the way to their own store, Victoria's Secret. Victoria's Secret is vertical. They design everything. They create the marketing. They own their own stores and their website. So there was no friction in between. And that's what I wanted. I wanted Mm -hmm. no friction in in between the design and the customer. Um, So I tried to find different avenues to get there. And then finally went to Victoria's Secret and found you know, what I found was the best education I could find around brand and consumer. I was seeing Tori Birch go from shoes to everything. I was seeing Ralph Lauren be from polo to home to baby to kids to anything that you want in mm-hmm. your house. And I wanted to figure out how to do that. So what was your first role at BS? So I was in what was called the Dirty Little Secret. It was a billion dollar part of their business and it was clothing. Does anyone remember wow, Victoria's Secret no. clothing? <laughs> I don't at all. Like the only clothing I and think of are their cute like jammy sets that I, I used know. to have. They had a huge clothing business and it started in their catalog. So it was it was actually called Victoria's Secret Direct, Direct meaning the catalog. But 98% of the business when I got there was done online. And so I was, again, geeking out, mesmerized. This area is doing a billion dollars and they think it's through a catalog, but it's actually on a website. And so I was one of those, you know, hustling assistants. I was um, hired as a, what was I hired as a buyer uh, um, when I was hired there? But I immediately was right in the face with all the execs and saying, we're an online business. Let's talk about the website first, not talk about the catalog first. Everything that was done there was like, let's decide the catalog and then the website. Like, this is backwards. So dorky girl coming in on Saturdays, creating like process and boards and trying to present the exact, this is how you should think. Um, How did they meet that? They didn't, they didn't understand or how, how did they take that insight? They loved it because, you know, what's 
great about corporations is they're really good at doing the same thing over and over and over again and optimizing it. But where they fail is to shift and rethink, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it was cool that I got to be at a place where they were open to, well, how do we change this dynamic? It's really hard to do that in a big organization. Um, but it was nice to be heard and, and listened to. So what were your roles like the whole time that you were there? Walk me through transitions. And also I'm curious to know at what point were you starting to think about having your own business within that category? Yeah. So, um, you know, I started in clothing and then I was moved to, um, lingerie. I got to start working on, um, I started with undies first, worked my way to a bra role. And my last role there was overseeing bras for direct, which was now focused on digital on the website specifically, um, and being in parallel with the stores. But, I, I guess I always started to think about it, which I didn't actually realize until I um, actually caught up with one of my bosses from Victoria's Secret. She's like, don't you remember on your review in 2008 what you wrote? And the question was, where do you see yourself in five years? And I wrote CEO of my own company. <laughs> so <What>? ignorant. So <laughs> ignorant. Like, who writes that? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you made it happen, so... <laughs> but I think at you know at the age of 28, I was like, all right, I I want to run my own organization someday. What was it about the situation that you were in that made you want to do that? Like, did you not see longevity within doing it in literally the biggest house for that category at the time? Like, what was it that you thought you could be doing better, differently, or just have a completely different approach um, that was worth? Because obviously, becoming a CEO or starting anything is extraordinarily hard. What yeah. was it that you saw as a huge white space that you were like, whatever, if it's super high, I don't care because there is demand for it. Right. Well, I think at that time it was, it wasn't about the product specifically. It was more so about um, where I saw my career going and the amazing women ahead of me and parallel where I saw brands going and how they were being built, conveyed and impacting society. So starting with the personal side, my bosses were my greatest heroes, these amazing women that were really, you know, breaking glass ceilings, et cetera. But I saw them doing so at the sacrifice of their personal lives. They weren't, you know, killing it at home and killing it at work. They were only killing it at work. And so I knew I was going to go on that path because I loved working. Um, But I didn't want to not have an amazing family relationship with my husband, et cetera. So that started to really hit home once I got married. And then on the other side of it, I felt like social media was on a huge rise and society was starting to dictate what brands should say, look like, feel like, and how they should impact. But we weren't doing that. And that wasn't happening in New York. There was still millions of dollars being spent to launch brands based on data and like what fashion trends were saying, not what the world and what society was saying. So I felt like there was a space to bring those two things together. One, create my own career trajectory, just like I did when I left Federated. I was like, I see that path. I don't want that path. I want to take twists and turns. And then two, well, how do I create a voice and a legacy and really a tone in which there's a brand out there that has as much power as Victoria's Secret? You see Victoria's Secret, everyone in the world here is Angel Fantasy Push-Up. Where is the brand that that I create? where people hear passion, purpose, and confidence. 
So I, one of my favorite things to talk about is this transition period of like, when you first have this idea, you may or may not be working at a job. Like a lot of the founders that I've had on here, a lot of them are thinking about this while they are at this last final job that they're working for someone else. Like what is the psyche shift of thinking about it? Maybe like doing some research, starting some spreadsheets to pulling the trigger. Like were there conversations that you had with people that you felt like it was time? How long were you thinking about it? Walk me through that whole process because I think that that is where people stop. You know, everyone has ideas. So how do you go from like saying goodbye to the sexy job with a sexy title to (laughs) starting from scratch? I think for me, it was, um, it was more organic than it wasn't intentional, to be honest. You know, I left Victoria's Secret knowing I needed to make a big shift. Um, but I didn't know what it was, you know, I think in my stomach, I knew I wanted to start a company, but it wasn't as intentional as like, I'm going to quit and then start a company. It was more so I need to leave and change my, um, atmosphere and open my mind again to something different. And what I knew is I wanted to go experience a startup. I wanted to get out of corporate culture, stop being coddled in these very specific areas and become more of a generalist and just see how companies are built and how they work. Um, so I left and I used my network to find a role at Thrillist Media Group, a company that just bought um, a flash sale company called Jack Threads that was on a tear. So this would be like a place where, one, I have a non-compete with Victoria's Secret. So I'm under contract where I need to kind of really pivot out of the space and learn. Um, And two, I could get an education on how to build a company and a team and not just learn like what to do right, but also what to do wrong while getting paid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so it was then that I knew watching, you know, the entrepreneur, Jason Ross, um, over Jack Threads and the entrepreneur, Ben Lear, over Thrillist Media Group, that I wanted my own company one day. I could see like them building, them creating jobs, them, you know sharing their own point of view on the world through their company and their culture. Um, And I wanted that. What was like the biggest takeaway for you? Like, was there anything that was specifically like a boot camp learning session that you like copy, not copy pasted into lively, but that you were like looking back at it, you wouldn't have been able to think about that in that way without having had that experience. Cause I feel like a lot of people go from, maybe they don't have an NDA or non-compete, but they can do the quick transition. Like what is the value of doing that? intermediate step before starting? Yeah, I think you get to see what's ahead, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, the biggest thing was I knew I was going to start a digital company. um, But the importance of acquisition and retention would never have dawned on me. You know, when when I was at Thrillist and and Jack Threads, we were very acquisition based, we were acquiring so many customers so fast and just blowing our sales numbers away. Um, But we weren't talking about retention. And we weren't talking about, are they coming back? And are we creating a sticky brand? Are we really creating a brand? Or are we just selling stuff, et cetera? Um, and so I think that was probably one of the most valuable lessons for me because my whole career was in merchandising. It wasn't in marketing. So I really got to see the power of content, power of commerce coming together, but more so how do you create a long lasting brand? How do you really understand the value of patience and discipline and cohesiveness to create something that's going to overcome the statistics, 60% failure at five years and 90% failure at 10. So what is it? What did you learn from there that is the secret sauce to having a lasting impact for a brand? It's the, it's the epitome of what Les Wexner did with Victoria's Secret. He decided what his mark was on the world, how that was going to look, feel, 
um, and be conveyed and was consistently hitting those three notes over and over and over and over again. But he spent the time understanding what it was and then pushing hard to make sure it was conveyed over and over. Just like the most powerful brands that you see out there, you see a glimpse of their logo, you see their product, you know it's them. Yeah. And you've nailed that with Lively. I can see like a fraction of an Instagram and I know that it's Lively's Instagram, you know, (laughs) I mean, you guys killed it. So I'm curious to also know how you started to kind of visualize what that was. What were those three points for you? And then how did you start building? Yeah. So, um, you know, I remember the day I left my job in Thrillist at Thrillist on a Friday. I started Lively on a Monday um, and I started just building images because I think that brands are very visual. Um, you don't have a lot of room to say a lot. You need to see a lot. So I just started pulling things that I felt were relevant around what I wanted to convey, which was passion, purpose, and confidence. Like what were the things that drew me up? You know, those those moments on the beach, a quick hit of lavender, an amazing workout, a walk with a friend, um, tasting something delicious, a glass of wine, you know, after a crazy work day and just started putting all of that together. Um, and then I sat down with a friend of mine on a Friday for four hours and I kept giving him beer and I kept making him make me talk and like, get it out. I kept pulling it out. We're like writing and drawing and writing and drawing, writing and drawing and kind of pick my head up. And I was like, this is a person that I created with all of the things that moved me in my life. You know, the best attributes of my friend, Amy, the best attributes of my parents and my upbringing, the things that I learned at work, first dates, all of this stuff. And started creating this persona live and like this woman live was going to be the woman that inspired women to be independent, to not just participate in what they love, but lead. She's fearless. She walks into a room and the energy is just filled. Um, And I just started playing with that and just massaging it. And then I created a mood board that's in my office to this day, Um, hired Sarah, our creative director and said, look, consult for me. Let's see if we see the world in the same way. We went around New York City, bought all the things that were making us feel amazing. It was swimwear, it was uh, sports bras, birthday candles from ABC Home and Carpet, like the most random stuff built a board. And we both sat back and we're like, yeah, this brand has no name, but this brand has legs. (laughs) So before we get into coming up with the first actual product, what what were you dealing with in terms of finances? Did you have a certain amount of money saved from your previous jobs? Like for the person that's listening that may want to start something, walk us through what that looked like financially. Um, and at what point you started hiring consultants and hiring a team? Yeah. So I think there's two clear pathways. I mean, there's many pathways you can start uh, on a company, but there's two big ones that people take. It's either bootstrapping, um, so side hustling and then funding your business or the less risky route, but you know, less ownership route is taking on an investor. And that's what I did. I took on an investor pre-launch, but I was very lucky that I was able to use my network to meet a supplier within the lingerie space that was also going to be my first investor, which for me was important. I had, I now have my daughter um, and my husband worked in finance and we're just right after the financial crisis. So we were really, you know, working hard to save and like build a financial life for ourselves. And I wanted to take some type of salary while building the company. So for me, the option that was right for our family was an investor. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, our product was really complicated. And I knew that I was going to get consumed with product development and not focus on brand and community and marketing. 
So it was a two-pronged strategy as to why I brought on that first investor. Once I had secured that investment, which I secured in August of 2015. Can you just walk us through like how (laughs) you secured it? Because I feel like without having proof of concept, especially for women trying to raise money, it's extremely difficult. Walk us through how you landed that. Well, I think there's a bit of luck and strategy in my story. So I found um, the CEO of the supplier called Gelmar International. He's third generation on the company, but he saw what I saw, which was a world in which lingerie was this $13 billion category being sold through department stores. And then there was one major brand, Victoria's Secret. Enter Warby Parker, Harry's, Casper, et cetera. Like where was that brand in the space? Mm-hmm. There was people trying and working on it, but he had the supply chain to do it and tried to launch brands online. Didn't work mm-hmm. out. And when we met, he was like, oh, you want to launch a brand? I was like, yep. I <laughs> want to make product for you and invest. There you go. So it, for us, it was like lightning. And he was meeting with other people to see who was the best candidate, um, quite frankly. So I like wrote a business plan, went in with convictions. Um, we decided to move forward. It took us nine months to create the deal, though. It was not something that was easy because neither one of us had ever done it before. But right. we spent the time getting to know each other. We built a relationship full of trust um, and went from there. So how do you know when the right time to start hiring is? I feel like that's also another big, big hurdle that in like the first two-ish years, it's like hard to navigate what those first hires look like. Does it make sense to yep. start doing contractor first, first full-time? Just, yep. yeah, I would love to hear your insights on that. So for me, I'm a little OCD <laughs> when it comes to just the brand and everything around it. So I wanted to have a lot of input in that, right? So for me, contractors, were my first hires. My first hire, Sarah, who's still to this day our creative director, she just started consulting. And we wanted to make sure that this would work for her and for me. Um, and luckily it has, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, five years later. Um, and then after that, I hired a graphic designer who she's still with me as well, um, but she was an intern for me for the first couple of weeks. So it was just the three of us um, from August until December. And then December, I made my first full-time hire, which was um, Allie, our director of brand marketing. Um, from there, it was four of us, basically right up until launch, um, until we brought on someone for customer service and to help with marketing. But my story is, I felt like less was more because I just loved figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And I surrounded with myself with women that loved figuring it out with me. So mm-hmm. outsourcing sometimes is better for other people. It wasn't good for me. Yeah. <laughs> I also think like if your brand is like a person, a persona, like you need to have a team that can speak that language or can speak the, the tone of that one person consistently throughout all different categories. And I feel like you only really get that if it's a team like tight knit like this, you know? Oh, totally. And you could tell like, um, Sarah built the board with me, Ariana, um, who's still our senior rap designer to this day. She and I met and I didn't have a role for her, but she did a watercolor painting that was so beautiful of a bra, kept sending me artwork. And I was like, I mean, I don't have a job for you, <laughs> but do you want to hang no? out? <laughs> yeah. She's like, sure, I'll intern. And then Ali Alquiza, I met with to find a vendor to make, you know, totes and things. But she kept coming back and building decks for me. I was like, do you want to work here? And she was like, yes, actually. And that's how that happened. So oh all of those conversations were women that you could tell were passionate about my idea.
So you launched direct to consumer. I'd love to hear your thought process on wanting to go that route first. And then at what point you felt it made sense for brick and mortar. And then also just your view on having physical retail spaces in a post COVID world. Yeah. So um, I started with direct to consumer and I think, you know, people naturally should because it's the easiest way to get a read on your brand Mm -hmm. over a wide net. Um, you know, thankful for Facebook and Google and all these digital platforms where you can get a read organically as to if people want to buy your product and why. <laughs> so we launched- wouldn't you think it'd be a little bit difficult? I mean, obviously Victoria's Secret had their online shop, but like for that category specifically before you, it's it was not a, a thing to do to buy a bra online. Like that was just not like you would go to Victoria's Secret and literally get the tape covered on your boob. I literally got a different number every single time I went. You know, like it was just a different way to shop. So how did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, we just basically said your bedroom mirror knows best. Like we'll ship it to you for free. You can return it for free. And just we're like very matter of fact, like save your gas money and buy something that you really want online. Yeah. (laughs) Save yourself time, convenience factor for those people. There was still a lot of people surprisingly that were willing to just try things online. I think, you know, with like, Rent the runway and everything else that was emerging in e-commerce um, with buying online, whether it was like leggings or activewear, et cetera, it was starting to open the gates for us. Mm-hmm. Now we've come a long way since then. Yeah. So then um, about brick and mortar, when did you realize that it was time for it? Do you find that it's something that you still want to have for your company? And what just what are your views in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, I mean, I think pretty much in line with the majority of our podcast (laughs) conversation today wasn't planned. It kind of happened organically as well. Um, But it happened because we started seeing a lot of success with our ambassador program. And with our ambassador program, we wanted to have a two-way street where, yes, the ambassadors definitely share lively with the world. But we also wanted to support them by bringing them together for like-minded events. So we bring them together for like-minded events like entrepreneurship panels, DIY classes, succulent, soul cycle, whatever was timely um, at the time. But in all of those events, people were like, well, where's the bra? I want to buy the bra. And then we started selling the bras like very hacky on the side. We're like, they keep wanting to buy them at these events. That spun into pop-ups um, that we were just doing at headquarters. So we'd go to like a media company's headquarter or Poshmark's headquarters. And we would sell thousands of dollars worth of lively in these places. So then finally we said, let's do a pop-up for two weeks. We did one in Dallas. We did one in Nashville, Nashville. They were ROI positive. So organically the writing was on the wall. We needed to open a store. (laughs) So what are your thoughts now? I feel like lively is so event focused. Even now you guys are doing a great job digitally, but what are your, what are your views in the next few months to the next few years? Yeah. I mean, look, I think overall, and you've heard me say this, I think life is about a series of moments in time. I think this is a moment in time where physical retail doesn't sound like a great idea, right? But that is not going to be the case when we really stretch out and think about the long term um, and how long we want our brand to live. So I think in this moment, physical retail is vulnerable. But if I think about a year ago, everybody wanted physical retail. Mm -hmm. So that just demonstrates how quickly a moment can come and go. Um, I think that physical retail is important in the long-term space of building a brand, whether that is around just even buy online, pick up in stores, right? Even during this pandemic, people are buying things online and they want to go curbside and get it immediately. Um, um, literally me and Credo. 
Like I'm like yeah. BFF with Krita right now. I'm like, I got to go every day. I miss it. Get it. I miss it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what is happening right now is the world of physical and digital are actually coming together much more beautifully and finding a way to intertwine that when the world settles and we find our footing post pandemic, they're going to be lockstep in a way that we've never seen before. I want to talk about your ambassador program or just your ambassadors in general. I feel like community has been the hot topic for a few years now, but now more than ever, it is what is carrying brands. And the only brands that are surviving are the ones that have a very strong community. How did you first start building your community base? How do you keep them engaged with a brand? It's not an easy task. Um, And how do you make them so diehard for lively? I feel like anyone that's listening that wants to start a brand that is the missing piece. It's really, really hard to do. And I think it's for Lively that it's just an organic love for the brand. And the, the person that buys Lively is the Lively woman that you, t- that you speak of. Um, but I would love like tangible things that we can give the audience on how to actually build that community. Yeah, sure. Um, number one, if you didn't launch your company already, build your community first. Um, that's what we did. Wow. Is We had focus groups. So we have a two degree rule of separation on focus groups where we would bring, literally we would rent out an Airbnb, bring 12 women together, have someone else, not us moderate so that we could sit in and they didn't know if we were the founder or employees of the company Um, and literally show them imagery, show them sentences, show them copy and get their feedback, invite them into the experience of building the brand with you. And all you do is promise them like, a gift card or a product once the brand launches. But those people will be, number one, they'll be your biggest advocates and your best customers because they were a part of building the brand, which when that brand launches, they're going to tell everyone they know. And they're going to buy the brand because they're so proud that they built it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so That's a really good that, takeaway. Yeah. I mean, humanize it, right? Like you want to, if you create something, you want to be a part of it and you want to tell everyone. So, you know, I I often tell people, like, don't spend so much time trying to write the strategy. Be the person that you want to buy the brand and figure out how you would want them to learn about you, to care about you, and to stick with you. Because building a brand is building relationships, like building a friendship um, that you want to last forever. So you're constantly nurturing it, spending time with it, and really constantly evolving and getting to know how that relationship is working, right? Yeah. And the things that you're doing together is constantly changing. Right, <laughs> definitely now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tangible things, focus group, focus group. And it, you know, during a pandemic, that could be a Google survey. That could be a Zoom call. That's just literally putting things out there and getting feedback and looking for trend lines. Number two, make it a two-way street. Don't make it about your brand and your product. So yes, our ambassador network is around lively, but our rules were it's not about the bra and it's not about lingerie. So no roses, no carnations. I love the laundress, but we're not going to work with them because that's part of lingerie, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and care about what those people want. What, you know, when we had our first event, all I did was listen to conversations. And that's where I heard full cycle, succulent, entrepreneurship. And those were our first three events. Full cycle, succulent, entrepreneurship. <laughs> so listen. Make it about them. Listen. How do you continue to grow it? Like, I feel like you guys just continue and continue and continue to grow. And it's just like, you think of a brand and you think that it can't grow anymore. And it just seems to keep on going. How do you make that happen? I think it's really 
one, paying attention to the brand lovers. So really thinking about your customer file and your ambassador file um, and understanding really where those loyalists are and why and creating more of them, right? Like who are the people that are buying your brand six times a year? Spend the time to get to know them and why they do so and try to and consistently replicate that. Same thing with our ambassador program. We're always looking at the girls that are the most engaged, the ones that really want to spend time with us. And we understand like, well, how did we create that relationship? What is it about that relationship that evokes so much energy and sparks that emotion? It took us about two years, honestly, to build our ambassador program to a place where it had momentum. For, I would say, a good year and a half, it was just a couple hundred girls and a lot of Google spreadsheets. But us being very, very disciplined to say, this is the future, just seeing how engaged this couple 100 women are goes to show that one day we could be at 100,000 and now we're like 140,000. Mm-hmm. So what were you doing with those 100 girls? Like, are you giving them free products? Like for the person that's listening that has no idea where to start with an ambassador program, like how does, how does that exchange work? Yeah, it's one, you have to understand like what your business can afford and what that model is. So for us, you know, the early days, it was here's a bra to try and some content to post and share. Um, and for some other brands, it's more so just here's a, a postcard or here's content or et cetera. But you have to understand what works for you. Um, but most importantly, like we got to know them, right? So we know, um, you know, our girls in Chicago, we know our girls in New York, we know our girls in Texas, and they don't all, they're not all interested in the same things. Um, but it's creating that connectivity and that space for them to come together and be heard. I think honestly, at the end of the day too, we treat them like individuals and humans, right? Um, so I, I mean, I know a lot of them personally, we spent right. the time. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I want to know what is your favorite thing out of all the many things that you do, all the hats that you wear for lively, like what is your main active ingredient waking up every single day, still excited to keep getting the word out there? What is the thing that drives you the most right now? Um, I would say it's our lively team just seeing, you know, like I said, Ari, who I met, you know, was a graphic designer trying to find where she fit in the world and like where she was going to really blossom within her career. And that was five years ago where literally she did a watercolor painting and now she's a huge part of what Lively was when it launched and where it's going today. Um, And I get to see that over and over again across our team. It's just so beautiful to see these girls and these women just start to enjoy the idea of figuring things out. They see the world as puzzles. They don't see it as problems and obstacles. And they, they don't like find themselves in these swim lanes. They're constantly picking each other up, helping each other. They've created a whole organization that can literally thrive even without me. There's a culture, there's a dynamic, there's a soul to lively that is based on human connection. So for me, that's, that's everything. That's all I wanted at Victoria's Secret. That's incredible. And like to be surrounded by that group of women every single day, like, I mean... There's nothing better, really. Nothing better. <laughs> so active ingredient is really to go through the person, the guest's journey, just how they got there, any hurdles, any takeaways um, that we can share with the audience. But it's also for the person that's listening that may be at a plateau or is at a crossroads or is just thinking of the next step for them. And they 
don't even know what to ask themselves. Like they, they see you and they see that you're living in your active ingredient that you're waking up every day, excited to see your team, but they don't know how to even find that for themselves. What advice would you give to a friend that came to you and was like, I I want to be living in my active ingredient and I don't know how. I would say experience things. Like I think about my first job at Federated where I was an assistant. Um, And one of the things I, I was proud of that I did was I would get in, I would try and get all my work done early so I could sit in on meetings and understand what other people in the organization did. Because I too, at that point in my career, didn't know, like I knew I liked this world of fashion, of retail, of brand, but I didn't know where I was going to fit in. So I just needed to go experience more. So I would break out of the space in which I had my role and just be a fly on the wall in the back of the room and be like, oh, so that's what the head of planning does. That's what the head of marketing does. That's what the head of tech does. And started to really absorb and understand other things around me until I found my God, I want to be a part of all of it. I want to be a generalist. Apparently that's called an entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. What do you see for Lively? Like, what do you, what do you envision? Do you still have like that butterfly feeling of wanting to do another board and see where it goes in the next few years? Like what, what do you want for for the company? Yeah. I mean, back in, in 2015, when we started building Lively, my utopian ignorant dream was that lively would be this word that women would see around the world and it wouldn't just be on a bra you know the homepage has pretty much always said today bras and undies tomorrow the world because the idea was that we could sell bras today concert tickets tomorrow but at the end of the day if humans saw the word lively they felt passion purpose and confidence and now i believe that this brand will live on decades decades beyond me if it survived home. and thrived right now absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and touch women in all facets of their life so we started with bras we have swimwear we have active we're going into other more you know um embracing categories within a women's day but you know my goal is that we continue on our pathway between you know by becoming a billion dollar brand that can service jobs and a place for women, men eventually <laughs> to work, but a culture that really thrives on um, a lifestyle that balances both sides, personal and business. I always close out the podcast asking, what is your literal active ingredient? Something that you have to do, work out to, eat, drink, something that you just need in your everyday life to function? Um, morning endorphins. Um, I would say I have to move my body and break a sweat every single morning really what's what's the workout choice um well since quarantine started i've broken a sweat every day i thank matthew mcconaughey for this because he always says the key to life is breaking a sweat every day which is so random it's so funny how he said that so many years ago and that like stuck with so many people like i remember him saying that (laughs) yes thank you matthew um and it started really in quarantine where i was just doing it to protect my body you know, and try to stay really strong from an immune perspective. But now it's just become my thing. And it could be a trampoline 20 minute class with the NAS. It could be a run. It could be swimming, anything really. Um, try to switch it up. Where can everyone find you and where can everyone find Lively? Um, so you can find Lively at Where Lively on Instagram, www.wherelively.com. And you can find me at the Michelle Grant. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so happy we finally made it happen. Oh, you're the best. So, so fun. (laughs) Love chatting with you, Sophie. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you can take two seconds of your time to rate and review us, it would really mean the world and help us out a ton. If you guys want more inspiration and quotes from the episode, you can check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.